Thank you, Bill. Good morning. This morning, you know, we, we've just read this passage about the arrival of someone who will do some great things. It, it's, as you read through it, you see these, these accolades that are given about the breaking of a yoke, of a burden being lifted, of oppressors being overthrown. Um, these titles that are given to this child that will be born, everlasting God, Father, Prince of Peace, these, these titles that are offered about this individual. And of course, we as Christians today believe, and the New Testament authors would tell us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. These promises that are made here are, are highly specific to the Israelite people, but also true of what Jesus will do for everyone. If you read this passage, one of the things that stands out to me most is that it is a triumphant celebration for a people who have had very little at this point to be triumphant about. If you read the entirety of the book of Isaiah, it is not an overall optimistic book for the Israelite people. But peppered throughout it, there are these promises that are made about a time that will be significantly better than things are in that moment. And in this particular passage, we're given a lot of expectation for a time that will come, for promises that will be fulfilled, for hopes and dreams that people would have. When we read the story of the arrival of Christ, as we've been doing in the Gospel of Matthew, we almost immediately encounter a couple of roadblocks, though. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... The expectation of a Messiah arriving to sit on David's throne was a pretty big deal to the Israelite people. Someone who would come and rule the Israelite people as an Israelite. Someone who had a rightful claim to the position of king. And for several hundred years before the arrival of Jesus, that seemed almost impossible. The Israelite people had been in a state of captivity they had been in a state of rule by some body or another for generations. They were not the masters of their own domain. There were these brief moments where it seemed like things were getting really better. There was an entire dynasty of kings that were also related to the priestly order. And that seemed pretty good because the Old Testament promised that the one that would come would be both a priest and a king, that he would serve multiple roles. And the way that in sometimes David actually ended up fulfilling those roles, whether or not it was his intent to do so, they looked forward to a time where the Messiah would come and he would be in many ways all the things that the people needed in order to have a direct relationship with God. A prophet, a priest, a king, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This was their expectation. But in the first century, late final century of the BCs, the Herods took the throne. The Herods were, in fact, a dynasty, the Herodian dynasty. And they were not rightful heirs to the throne of David, but they were politically savvy. 
They could read the writing on the wall. In fact, at one point, they had been the allies of the Hasmonean kings, the kings who were both priests and kings, that temporarily had ruled when no one else could take the throne because the Romans had not yet completely conquered the area and the previous occupants had left because they'd been driven out. And there was a very brief period of time that the Israelite people would have said, you know what, this is actually a really good situation for us. We have real Jews who have a connection to the priesthood, who are kings who now rule over us. This is a good situation. It wasn't such a great situation because the Hasmoneans played a lot of wheel and deal with the kingdoms around them. But internally, the perspective might have looked pretty optimistic. And the Herods actually worked alongside them. The Herodian individuals worked alongside them until they saw the writing on the wall and aligned themselves with the Romans as the Romans came and swept in and removed the Hasmoneans. And Herod, who was not really a Jew, a kind of a Jew, but not really, took the throne. And he was tremendously enthusiastic as someone who was empowered by the Roman Empire to do the work of Rome within the province that was Judea. He, he undertook a lot of reforms. He, he built a lot of really impressive structures that you can go and see most of today. In fact, if you were to go and visit uh, the Cave of the Patriarchs, something that you would find is that there, was, there is a, an ancient building around the cave of the patriarchs where Abraham and Isaac were buried. And in this cave, you know, there's like a shelter built up around it now, like a whole church, a mosque, and a, 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 a synagogue all built around it. And inside of that, there's this cube that's kind of built over the entrance to the cave. And Herod was part of that. That was his desire, was to enshrine these places that were historically significant to the Jewish people. His construction projects are, were renowned in his own time. He was a king, maybe a mock king, because that title wasn't really used for local governors, but he got to call himself the king. Because it made the Jews kind of happy to have someone on their throne who would at least pay homage to the individuals that had come before them. This was his role. And he was celebrated for it by the Romans. There were some Jewish people that saw this as a great opportunity. Hey, at least we have someone who's going to pay lip service to the things that we believe. Maybe, maybe this is close enough to the Messiah we were promised. It's not as good as we had it under the Hasmoneans. Certainly not as good as we had it before Solomon started to kind of destroy our kingdom in many ways by turning us to idolatry. But it's about as close to David as we could get at this moment. And so when we read this passage, what we see immediately in the invoking of the name of Herod is that in many people's minds position of king was already filled. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I think for a lot of us today, the position of king is filled. We've, we've got someone who sits on the throne in one way or another. Now, 
I would hope for most of us in this room that the person that sits on the throne for us is Jesus. That's, in fact, one of the the strongest claims that the New Testament makes about who Jesus is and the way in which we're supposed to approach him and the way in which we're supposed to refer to him and the way that we're supposed to think about his involvement in our lives is as Lord, as King. This enthronement is a theme that appears multiple times in the New Testament. But there are a lot of kings that exist in our culture. I think if we were to talk to our neighbors, most of them wouldn't acknowledge that they serve a king. That, that idea is a little bit repulsive to people who live in a democracy. I don't serve a king. There is no one that rules over me. In fact, I get to pick my rulers. Isn't that kind of ironic? I get to pick the people that rule over me. We don't necessarily even like the idea of a king, but the truth is we all serve someone. Everybody has given their allegiance to someone. We have all decided who it is that's going to rule over us, who's going to hold the position of authority in our lives, the ways in which we're going to pay honor to them, the ways in which we're going to allow them to direct and dictate our footsteps and our actions and the words that we say. And for most people, in the time of Jesus, there wasn't just one king that they had all of this consideration for. There were multiple rulers that oversaw them. In fact, I spent the last three weeks trying to research and understand well the government below Caesar in the Roman Empire, and it is so ridiculously complex and hard to understand. Now, I want to be completely clear. As far as the Romans were concerned, there was one king over all the people, and that was Caesar. If Caesar wanted you to die, you were dead. That was the way that it worked. If Caesar wanted your land, it was Caesar's now. If Caesar wanted to conquer a new region and it cost the lives of a million people, he would send a million soldiers to conquer that piece of land. And you couldn't combat him on this. This was exactly what an empire was supposed to be. Everyone serving the one man at the top. Now, there were proconsuls, and there were governors, and there were many kings like Herod, and there were men that, that were the commanders of legions, military leaders, governmental leaders. There were uh, bureaucrats. There were individuals that were responsible for the finances. There were individuals who were part of a very disempowered senate that sat in Rome. But there was one king above them all. Now, you may not, in your heart, have felt that that man was the one king. In fact, you may have looked at Herod and said, he's my one king. I don't care what Caesar says. But if Herod's king is Caesar, you're still serving Caesar. And we don't have to go too far to see how this this holds up. It says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been, and this is really key, born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Caesar was not born king of the Jews. In fact, Caesar wasn't born Caesar. 
Caesar rose to that title. Herod wasn't born the king of Judea. He had to wheel and deal to get that power for himself. He had to play some dirty tricks on people that he'd had former alliances with to arrive at the power that he was given. In fact, the funny thing about it is, if anyone knew that Herod wasn't really a king, it was Herod himself. A lot of people might have been able to say, you know, if he was installed by Rome, then that means he must be the king. That's the way that it works. But Herod, as someone who understood that there was a promised Messiah for the Israelite people, he knew he knew that it would come from the line of David. And he knew his own background. And he didn't measure up to the qualifications. If there was anyone who doubted Herod's kingship, it would have been Herod himself. And then to hear these foreigners, these men from the east, come and say, we have come to see the one who has been born king of the Jews. Born king of the Jews. There could not have been a greater attack on Herod's claimed identity of himself than that phrase. Born the king of the Jews. Isn't it interesting that this man who in many ways had utilized the Jewish religion to claim and cement power for himself by creating wondrous and powerful you know, examples of his, his strength, by building monuments, by improving the temple, things that we all might say, these are actually good things. It's, it's wonderful that he built upon the temple, that he extended the temple mount so that it would be larger and more people could come and worship there. That seems like a really good thing. Isn't it wonderful? Wonderful that he enshrined the cave of the patriarchs. Isn't it wonderful that he did all of these great things for the people of Israel? But if the motives are only self-serving, so that all the people below him might pay him tribute, what good is any of it? And lingering in the back of his mind is the knowledge that he's not really a king. Even the title that he wields for himself is not not the real title that Rome would have recognized him by. Nobody in Rome was calling Herod the king. He might have been a governor. but He was not king. And Herod knew that. Of course, if we turn to Luke's uh, particular account of all of this, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, In those days, a decree went out from, not Herod, Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Now, keep in mind here, this tells us immediately who wields all the power, because the one that gets people to go back to their hometowns is not Herod. The one that gets people to move and go and register is not Herod. The one that is able to find himself in a position to say, you know what, I told you to jump and you're going to ask how high, is not Herod. It's Caesar. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is this Quirinius, Quirinius, He's he's 
kind of in the same position that Herod is in. They are both governors. They are both individuals who have a tract of land that they have been given to oversee and rule under the authority of Caesar. But neither of them had this this little phrase that would be called uh, by us like executive power. The Romans called it imperium, the power to rule, to set law, to command how things would be. Anything that they wanted to do, they had to appeal back to a greater authority than themselves and say, you know what we really want is uh, I would like to undertake this construction project here. I'd like to tax the Jews just a little bit more to be able to fill our coffers. We will still send Rome exactly the things that that Rome has asked for. But in order to cement the power of Rome, we need to undertake some significant projects here. We would like to tax the people. And, And Caesar would say either that it was a valid tax for the sake of Caesar's control of the territory, he would say, I think you're trying to build a kingdom for yourself here. Tax denied. We see so early in the accounts of the life of Jesus just how complicated the governmental system is. Think about all of the authority figures that Jesus encounters over the course of his life. Centurions, governors, Pontius Pilate himself is is sort of a figurehead over the area of Jerusalem and Judea. He encounters fake kings, and the whole time in the background of the Gospels lingers this question of, well, what about Caesar? He's a man who claims that he's brought peace to an empire peace to the world. He calls himself the king of kings. Where do you fit into this, Jesus? You say you're here to be our king, our Messiah, that you're God's anointed one. But we kind of feel like the position's already been filled. And Jesus spends a significant amount of his ministry addressing these kinds of questions Addressing the idea that there are authorities in this world that genuinely exist, that people can acknowledge and see, that there is no denying that there's a Sanhedrin that oversees the religious governance of the Israelite people, that there are high priests that the people have to be accountable to, that there are individuals who rule and govern them from a societal level. Jesus doesn't balk at any of this. When someone brings him a question about taxes, he asks, whose whose image is on this coin? Who do you pay taxes to? Do you pay taxes? This is the question that's being asked. And Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Jesus doesn't even necessarily balk against the idea that Caesar has a right to certain things as the position that he has taken within the world. Of course, then he turns it around and he says, render unto God that which is his. I want you to think for just a moment here about this idea of the image that's stamped on the coin. Every single coin that existed in the Roman Empire belonged to Caesar. 
If he wanted it, he could have it. He could demand it. He could set the tax at 100%, and you would pay 100% tax. In asking that question about the image, though, I think that there's something to be said for the, the implicit message that Jesus is offering. Whose image is stamped on you? If a coin belongs to Caesar because his image is on it, who do you belong to because of the image that's stamped on you? In that that little conversation that Jesus has, for me, every time I read it, I can't help but think back to the statements about the creation of human beings. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He made them. There is a big question being asked in the life of Jesus that that we really have to consider. You know, there are a lot of things that in this life we have to acknowledge are practical realities. There are a lot of Caesars in our world, a lot of people that are above us in some way, shape, or form, men that sit on thrones. There are people that have a power and authority over us in some way, shape, or form, but not a single one of them can claim that their image is stamped on us. Maybe our fathers, if we look particularly like our father. Maybe our mother, if we look particularly like our mother. But even they are created in the image of God. And so any resemblance that we bear to them ultimately points to the one whose image is stamped on us. And we spend a lot of time asking ourselves, how does a Christian respond to the American government? How does the Christian respond to the United Nations? How does the Christian respond to our our locally elected officials? How is it that we interact with them? What tribute do we owe to them? How do we go about interacting with the people that are around us? Do, Do I owe my allegiance to a flag? Do I owe my vows to a nation? And God says, God incarnate says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Whatever's got his image on it, it's his. But you, you bear my image. Render yourself to me, I think is the implicit message that Jesus is giving to us. A lot of us struggle sometimes to figure out who we're going to serve. We shed a lot of tears or worry or stress. We make our hair gray thinking about the ways in which the rulers of this world are either doing the right or wrong thing. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about those things. But not a one of them is our king. When Jesus arrives as the king of the Jews, born the king of the Jews, he's fulfilling that promise that we read in Isaiah. That the government will be on his shoulders. There are a couple different ways I think we could read that and interpret it. We might say that this means that now, All authority in this world is subject to Jesus, that he will carry it, that the burden that it is, is his and his alone. 
We could read it instead as the governance of his people is on his shoulders, that for those who follow him, all the weighty decisions are carried by him. I think either one of those readings is true. I think that the the authorities of this world, in fact, Paul would tell us that the, the powers and principalities, that's the phrase he uses to describe them, that they're subject ultimately to Jesus. Our battle is against them, but in the end, Jesus has victory over them. But I also think that the language of a king, the language of a Messiah who is our Lord, tells us that the government of our hearts, of our lives, of our footsteps and our speech, is the king of kings, the one who was born the king of the Jews. We can respond, I think, in a couple of different ways to the idea of Jesus being king. And we see this played out in a couple of, a couple of ways. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 and 5, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem in Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now we get back to these wise men from the east, and it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is what they came here to do. This is the response that the wise men have to the one who was born the king of the Jews. Now keep in mind, they are likely not Jews themselves. They've come from the far east, from a place not so nearby. He's born the king of the Jews, but to them, this is good news. To those outside of the household of Israel, the arrival of the king of the Jews is good news. There's the response that we can have to the king who is Jesus to worship him, to recognize the good news that he is. And then there's the other response. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I think perhaps the most important thing that we can take away from Herod's response to the arrival of the one who is born the king of the Jews is the understanding of how inconvenient this is for him. We can either recognize that Jesus is good news, that he is the best news that we could possibly receive, or we can respond and say, you know what? I recognize what Jesus is supposed to be. I get it now because I've consulted the men who know the prophecy and know where he's supposed to be born. I have verified that this, in fact, could very well be the Messiah, and you know what? That's just not convenient for me. I want to keep being the king in my life. I want to fill the position. I want to be the one who decides what's right and wrong. Make my own decisions. 
And we can say we don't have the space for a new king. The position's already filled. The truth is you cannot serve yourself and yourself alone. Because if you serve yourself, there is an authority over you still. You are serving somebody. And Herod knows, even if he were to deal with this Jesus problem, there is still a king over him. Paul uses the idea that we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to Christ. We have choices in who we serve and what we serve. Herod, in his allegiance to himself and to Caesar, chooses to serve the powers and principalities of this world whom our fight is against. Not flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities. The wise men choose to serve the king of kings, the one born the king of the Jews. And I think if we all examine our lives, I think if we think carefully about who we are and what we do and the ways in which we live, we're going to arrive at one of two conclusions. Either we have submitted ourselves to the one who was born the king of the Jews, or we're still serving Caesar in some way. Even if we've placed ourselves on the throne of our heart, there is someone above us that we're serving. I think one of the messages of Christmas is to recognize who Jesus is, who this child that was born, the king of the Jews, is, and to abdicate our authority to him. I want to encourage you this week to consider carefully what that looks like in your life. Who is ruling? Who is sitting on the throne? And even in your acknowledgement of Jesus as the king of kings, are you perhaps serving someone else? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there are a lot of people we could serve. There are a lot of places uh, we could find ourselves. There are a lot of things that we could pursue with our, our hearts and our minds and our energies. And Father, we just pray that we are pursuing the right thing, that we recognize the one worthy of our worship, that we come and we kneel before the one who was born the King of the Jews, that we see that that's not just good news for one group of people, but it is good news for all mankind. And we pray, Father, that we would proclaim it loudly and boldly for those who don't know it. And Father, it will be up to them whether or not they choose to let Christ sit on the throne of their heart. But ultimately, Father, even if they choose to sit on the throne, all knees will bow, all tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray, Father, that more would come to the acknowledgement of that today so they don't have to come to that acknowledgement then. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways that we can walk alongside you, if we can help you to uh, discover how Jesus is the king of your heart, we want to invite you to do so. Uh, we have water ready for baptism. We might have to move a few things around on the stage, but we'd be willing to do that. We want to encourage you to consider who rules in your life. We want you to acknowledge the one who was born the King of the Jews. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing it this time.